Welcome back to Let's Talk About Race, the podcast where we try and cut through the yelling that we see in mainstream media and have real in-depth discussion about race relations in this country. Joined here today by Emeritus Professor Phil Reichel, PhD at University of Northern Colorado. Phil, thanks so much for being with us today. You're quite welcome. So you have a number of titles. Before we get into talking about police, do you mind giving us just a quick synopsis on the various titles you've held as they relate to uh, crime, policing, and criminal justice? I'd be happy to. Uh, My PhD is in sociology from Kansas State University. Um, I began my teaching career in uh, the early 1970s after working at the Nebraska State Penitentiary for about a year, year and a half as a counselor. Um, And since that time, my areas of interest uh, have been focused around uh, comparative criminal justice systems and corrections. And basically what that means is that I've developed an interest in how police courts and corrections operate in other countries around the world. Uh, But within that broader category, uh, I'm especially interested in the corrections aspect. Um, And I still present papers and am actively involved in my organization's um, annual conferences, including um, many European conferences. In fact, I'm the... uh, NGO representative to the United Nations uh, for the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences. Well, that's definitely a very full resume. I really appreciate someone with your expertise coming on the show. Policing right now is very much in the spotlight in American, uh, beyond culture, really just society at large. But one of the things that I know we talked about, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious about, is as far as policing goes in America, what are its intentions and kind of tracing that back to the inception of policing itself. There's been kind of a lot circulating recently about uh, police starting actually as slave patrols in the South um, to return slaves to their masters when they had run away. So if you don't mind, could you kind of give us a brief history of how policing started in America? What was its charter, so to speak, and, you know, how that kind of developed When I was uh, first teaching back in the early 70s, as I mentioned, I taught at what is now Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, because of my, um, that was my first time living in the South, and I was kind of interested in uh, the history of policing in the South, because the only thing that we ever read about in any of the literature and criminal justice and criminology was really about the history of policing in the North. One of the first uh, bits of research that I did was to look at the history of policing, specifically in the South, and even more specifically in South Carolina and Georgia, and um, came to learn more about the slave patrols and uh, how they started. And this was very different, as it turns out, because in the North, policing really was responding more to an urbanization kind of problem. Uh, In the North, there was uh, public drunkenness and mass migration, immigration, Uh, There were riots, and there were other negative consequences that develop out of urbanization. And finally, we have uh, the modern police department uh, in New York City in 1844, with all of the forerunners in northern cities uh, being more linked to um, citizen day watches and night watches. Well, in the South, because urbanization wasn't really uh, occurring in that fashion, um, I was interested in uh, how and why policing started in those colonies and then eventually the states. And it became obvious very, very quickly, just by reading the legislation, uh, that the Southerners were much less concerned about urbanization, but very much concerned about slaves and the 
acts, uh, running away, criminal acts, uh, riots, um, disturbances that the slaves were uh, engaged in. And that caught me a little bit off guard back in the early 70s because I had grown up kind of learning about um, slavery and knowing that it was bad and horrible, but also not fully appreciating how the slaves themselves were reacting and taking action on their own behalf against their bondage. And as I was reading more about this and, and reading about the various revolts and the criminal acts, uh, or what were defined as criminal acts, committed by uh, the slaves against the owners and the owner's property, uh, I began understanding that, well, I, this would be viewed by whites, and not just white slave owners, but whites in general, as a dangerous class that uh, action needed to be taken against and that we needed to protect ourselves from. And so we started seeing slave patrol legislation developing uh, throughout the southern states, uh, beginning in well, the early 1700s in what was then the Carolina colony, and then moving throughout the southern states into uh, the 18th century and even the early 19th century. And those slave patrol acts uh, basically developed uh, citizen patrols from what were then the state militias, or the colonial militias even before that, uh, requiring um, citizens to set up patrols uh, to take action against slaves. So I want to ask along those lines, you made kind of an interesting comment, and, and this is something that's been coming up a lot recently with the protest versus riot and what's classified as a, as a dangerous class of people. So I think that right now a lot of the sentiment that is being echoed is that black Americans are kind of seen by police and by a lot of white America as a dangerous class still, and police are not chartered with uniformly um, enforcing the law for everybody. It's not the public safety of everybody, but it's kind of police acting on behalf of the elites against what is considered this dangerous class, which many fields still permeates um, to this day. Do you know in your experience and, and what you've researched as far as that, you know, thorough, that being a, an undercurrent that kind of remains from slave patrol times? So there are uh, certainly some uh, of, the, of the research that holds to the, uh, well, actually, it's, it's called the minority threat uh, hypothesis. And the idea is that policing, not just in the United States, but policing around the world, develops as an, uh, a response to the perceived threat posed by minorities, whatever that particular minority be, might be in uh, uh, the United States or another country. Uh, so, yes, I, I would say that there is a continuing argument uh, that the the idea behind policing is one that developed as a social control mechanism, and the uh, the people being controlled are typically the minority groups within a country, and the perception by the dominant members of that population in whatever country we're talking about, the perception that the minorities are a dangerous class, that they are going to be that they are uh, posing a threat. Uh, but yes, I, I think that what you were describing uh, is pretty consistent, especially in terms of, uh, as I said, what is called the minority threat hypothesis. That's interesting, especially because I know that I've been seeing, uh, you know, Canada is one I'm most familiar with just because it's right, you know, our, our neighbor to the north, but they seem to have very similar types of police violence against the indigenous population there. Um, I hear a little bit of it with Australia and the Aboriginal population. 
Um, I have some relatives in France. I, I believe right there, right now, it's it's fairly anti-Muslim in nature. Can you think of any examples as far as situations that feel similar to what Black Americans are experiencing, just on, maybe on a global scale? Um, yes, um, unfortunately, uh, there are e examples just all around the country and. In Europe, uh, you have uh, the, the Turks in Austria. In Japan, it's the Koreans, Latinos, African Americans, Native Americans in the United States, uh, indigenous people in both Australia and in um, Canada. And in fact, it is just uh, happening all over the place. There's a, there's a report that comes out by the European Union, not annually, but periodically. And it's, um, I won't get the title quite right, but minorities in the European Union, and they've done a couple specifically on um, blacks living in European Union countries. And uh, I, I, one statistic that comes to mind is that in London, for example, uh, a black person in London is four times more likely than a, a white person to have force used against them. Um, and in other countries of the European Union, members of the Roma uh, ethnic group are especially uh, heavily policed, as the term is sometimes used in the European Union, union writings. Uh, and so the, the Roma ethnic groups, um, especially in Eastern Europe, but also in Central European countries, are um, are very heavily responded to by, by police and police force. So again, the uh, what we're experiencing in the United States, and this is in no way to dismiss it or to say that it happens everywhere, so it must be okay. I'm simply arguing or suggesting that what we see happening in our country is, unfortunately, not always that unique. Which I guess begs the question, do you think policing by nature is racist? I don't like the idea of picking out one particular social institution like the policing uh, as being uh, racist with, because it implies, at least to me, that other social institutions in a country aren't. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, you, you think about um, policing, well, just taking criminal justice, for example, um, policing certainly plays a role, but so does prosecution, and so does sentencing, uh, so do the juries. I mean, all aspects of the criminal justice system, from reporting to the police, even police dispatchers, I guess you could say, that there's, there's some interesting studies about how information that the police get from police dispatchers, uh, what information the dispatcher himself or herself chooses to pass on to the police officer has a very, very big influence on how the police respond to the situation. So depending upon um, any implicit bias that the dispatcher might have, uh, maybe he or she is providing information or not including important information when telling the police to go to this particular call and see this particular person. So you really can start uh, when you're talking about um, bias and prejudice and implicit ra racism, uh, it really goes through all aspects of society, whether it's our school system, our religious institution, uh, finances, I mean, everything. And that's, of course, where our policing, not just ours, but any country's policing, comes from that country's society. And so to point a finger at the police and you know, yell racist police or racist system um, may not be incorrect, uh, but it certainly is only part of the picture. You know, I really appreciate your perspective on corrections, right, as the part that happens, I guess, sentencing and corrections, right? So someone gets arrested and they have to go to trial and then after trial they go to prison. Is there anything that you notice as far as in either sentencing or corrections that appears to be fairly biased or something that you would hope to highlight that needs change? Um, some of the 
research done on the death penalty, and there's a reason to believe that uh, prosecutors in those states that have the death penalty um, may be choosing to prosecute and charge uh, a person with a, a capital crime uh, based, well, two ways, um, on the, the offender's race. Uh, but there's even more research in the last 20 years or so suggesting that uh, charging with um, a capital crime based upon the race of the victim. So that if a person, regardless of whether you're a white or black offender, for example, if your victim was white, uh, there seems to be indication that there is a greater likelihood, at least in some jurisdictions, that you will be charged with the death penalty or, or um, the death penalty be sought in your case. If your victim was instead a minority group member, specifically a black person, for example, uh, there is less likelihood that death penalty will be sought. Um, so I think that does show that there are, are still problems, even as you go further along the system and getting into the sentencing stage and even the trial stage. Yeah, and so just to recap and make sure I understand correctly, you're saying that if you have a, a black defendant who is accused of killing a white person, there's a higher likelihood that the death penalty would be sought as opposed to the black defendant who had killed a, another black person. Correct. And uh, even beyond that, if you had a, um, a white person who killed a white person, um, that would increase the likelihood of the death penalty being sought than if a white person killed a black person. And I want to go back. I recently had a conversation with six police officers outside of a protest in New York. And it was really interesting to me. I was trying to get their perspective, and, and obviously it was, uh, you know, facing a little bit of an initial hostility, but they did actually engage with me, and we talked for about an hour. I said, do you feel that if, you know, if you're being charged with protecting and serving and the people, the citizens that pay taxes don't feel protected or served, do you feel like you're doing your job poorly? And not one of them said yes. And, and the attitude that they seem to have is that we're here to uphold the law. You know, we're here to preserve order. And so anybody that is disturbing order um, is someone that is, we're going to act against. It seemed like they had a very nebulous idea of what order was and who order was for. And it felt very hostile in that sense. So I ask you, what do you think the police view their function as? What is the specific charter for police in America? Uh, well, that brings up, I guess, two kinds of issues, um, one of which is when we talk about police in America, we aren't talking about a single entity. We have more than 18,000 different law enforcement agencies, most of them at the city and county level uh, throughout the country. Uh, that's very, very unusual around the world. Uh, Switzerland and Mexico are about the only other two countries in the world that have what's called a decentralized uh, policing system like that. Most everywhere else, there's a, great, uh, a much greater unification or centralization of policing. So when we would talk about the idea that there is a, a mandate for American policing, uh, we are forgetting that our police respond to city level uh, politicians. Um, some, the county sheriffs, will, will go with the uh, uh, county politicians. Uh, there are state-level police. There's federal police. And at each of those levels, you're going to have different kinds of standards that the police are to abide by. So depending upon, uh, let's just take uh, city-level police, one city's police chief and city council might be very supportive of the idea of community policing. 
and the members, uh, the police officers are hired uh, based upon that police chiefs and that city council's perspective as to how policing should operate in their city. Um, three cities away, maybe even in the same state, uh, you might have a very different police chief and a very different city council who believe that it's most important for the police to engage in control mechanisms and to uh, um, clean up the streets and to engage in uh, broken windows um, kind of uh, policing opportunities. So I, I don't want to not answer your question, but I, I think that the question is phrased in such a way that it's making an assumption about police throughout the United States as having some kind of common uh, or central mandate that they're responding to. I think a lot of, right now the conversation for a lot of people has actually been how to change things and, and who to hold accountable. It also brings me to my next point, which um, it's not necessarily strictly about race, but it's something that's been coming up a lot in the Black Lives Matter protests, which is changing police and, and defunding police has become a big um, topic. And you having worked on crime prevention, uh, you know, at a fairly high level, you know, the UN, I don't know if there is a, a higher body internationally to, to speak um, about on that kind of thing. Um, I'm curious if you could share any examples you've come across that have been effective reforms. There are several, and, and I'll be happy to go over a few of those. I do want to reiterate, if you want to make uh, bring about change and uh, make adjustments to what we are currently doing, especially in the United States, it's going to be very, very difficult to talk about national change. It's even going to be a little bit difficult to talk about statewide change because then you're going to have cities and counties who have some independent jurisdictions uh, that would have to be brought into this as well. It's important to keep in mind that these really can't be, or at least it would be very, very difficult for them to be national suggestions just because of the way that policing in the U.S. Uh, is set up. Now, having said that, uh, there were some suggestions made uh, President Obama set up a, uh, a commission um, uh, during the, his second term, if I recall correctly, uh, that involved some aspects of police reform. But one of them uh, was a suggestion that in um, Great Britain, for example, they have uh, a sta uh, uh, an inspector general uh, who ha kind of oversees all of the police in Great Britain, uh, England and Wales. And in doing so, they assure that throughout uh, England and Wales that country that the uh, the police standards are being followed and that uh, if they don't if they see a particular agency uh, that they need to call uh, on the carpet if you will uh, then the inspector general in uh, Great Britain can do this and there were some suggestions that not at the national level but at least at the state level maybe we need to have inspector generals or some term that would be appropriate like that and that inspector general at the state level uh, of police would have some influence or some say about how the city police departments throughout the state and the county sheriff's departments and the state police as well, um, what kind of training they have, what kind of responsibilities they have. Uh, I think that's something that, that would be well worth looking at. So I've seen a couple independent commissions being set up in the U.S., and I think the general critique of them is that it's still kind of the police enforcing the police. It's still kind of an insider's club, and it's not strictly just police officers, but as far as what you're talking about further down the line, the DAs, the judges, um, the entire criminal justice system seems to feel like it's one 
side that tends to um, work within itself and not want to prosecute its own. And so I think that's kind of the big critique I've, I've heard of any sort of, you know, commission or any sort of uh, investigation on the police is that it has to be done by someone that is very much external to policing as a, as a system. Do you think there's credence to that, that critique? Very much so. Uh, yeah, I'm also familiar with um, more at the, uh, at the local level, uh, city um, police commissions uh, operate at the, at the local level. And uh, I know exactly what you're talking about because those individuals who end up on those commissions are oftentimes um, interested in applying for those commissions because of uh, uh, various interests and, uh, that they might have. But the commissions are oftentimes appointed by uh, politicians, by city council members, by uh, the governor, and uh, all of those political aspects are going to obviously have a role in the kinds of people uh, that are put on the commission. I don't think that that very real problem is always a good reason to uh, dismiss the idea. I'm not suggesting you were dismissing it, but but I think there might still be, because it has worked in other countries, uh, I still think there might be some reason to at least give attention to that as an option. And I want to take it one step further even. Right now you hear defunding the police. That has become a big rallying cry, and, and I've had a number of conversations with people. I think the general viewpoint tends to be you cannot reform something that was broken from its inception, which is, again, part of why I've been interested in the history of police. I think there's definitely a lot of interesting points as far as if you were to give the same attention to harm reductive, preventative social work, you know, for instance, if you were to help point, you know, staff and resources towards homelessness, you would reduce a lot of police um, work related to that. If you were to treat, you know, drug and, and opioid crisis as something that was a public health issue that wasn't criminalized, you would reduce a tremendous amount of the of the police caseload. So the idea of having everything treated on a criminal basis rather than a, on a social basis, I think is the, the main proponent there. The critics of that will say, well, of course we need police. You know, we can't just get rid of police. That's how we have safety, police, you know, enforce safety. There tends to be this big emotional divide as far as do police bring about safety or are they actually bring about more harm by criminalizing what should not be treated as as, as criminal people or, or acts. So you having actually spoken to the United Nations as far as crime prevention, do you think there's a way to reduce police budgeting and still keep society safe? I'm a big fan of, uh, of training and education. Not surprising, I suppose, given my career path. <laughs> um, but, but I think that we can learn from some of the European countries where police training, for example, takes a much different form uh, than it does in the United States. Uh, in the United States, uh, a police officer might get, uh, I think the average is around uh, four or five months of training. In much of Europe, and uh, Asia as well, people who become police officers, uh, it wouldn't be unusual for them to go to a police college, for example, much like getting a bachelor's degree is done here. Uh, the police in many European countries go to a, a university or to a college that is specifically for um, uh, policing. They want that's their chosen occupation. And so they'll take three or four years and get the equivalent of a bachelor's degree uh, before they become uh, full-fledged police officers. They're being trained in Europe on uh, issues of race relations, community relations. They learn about law. 
they take basic kind of law classes that you might maybe in your first year of law school. Uh, they are becoming prepared to be police in a very different manner than what police officers are here. Uh, I think that makes a big difference. I think when you take a 21-year-old and put them through four months of training, much of which is going to be in the uh, um, shooting range and um, uh, learning about the specific laws they're supposed to enforce uh, and learning very little about working with uh, mental health issues, uh, working with uh, the community and community relations, we just aren't training and educating our police in the same way that police in other countries are being trained and educated. And I think we can improve on that. I want to press a little bit more. I think you talked a lot about the impact of training, and I don't think anyone would argue that more training is bad. But I think that, again, the, what people who are saying defund are saying is that there's only there's still a limit, even if you were to train police officers the right way, just the, the tasks that we give police are by nature criminal. Police are enforcing laws and trying to enforce laws and criminalizing people as a result of that is not the way to go about harm reduction or even necessarily crime prevention. It's kind of like a punitive after the fact. So I'm still trying to see if there is, you know, some value to the idea of, of just shrinking police departments entirely, both in, in size of the number of officers as well as the scope of, of things they're tasked with and reappropriating some of that money towards personnel that could be used, again, towards helping drug usage, homelessness, um, a lot of the things that police tr traditionally criminalize that, that we could argue are, are social or public health issues. Do you think there's value to that argument? Other countries are having the same kind of problems that we are. Uh, if we kind of started off uh, our conversation, or at least early on in our conversation, we were talking about uh, how uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, folks living in uh, in the European Union are subjected to uh, discrimination and racism. So policing have this kind or has this kind of problem uh, everywhere. And I don't think that the Europeans or Asians or anybody else has come up with um, the best answer. But I don't know of any place where. Well, first of all, that's police-free. Um, every country that I know of has a police force. Uh, some of them use that police force differently than others, getting to your point. Uh, in some cases, the police aren't responsible for, or at least aren't the first call for mental health issues. In some places, the police are not always used to handle um, uh, homeless issues, for example, or responding to calls where the issue seems to be one related not so much to a crime being committed, but to a social problem existing. Uh, so I think there is certainly room to look at who has responsibility for what and to look at policing in the United States as maybe needing to respond to fewer types of instances. And I'm not sure that the police would necessarily mind that. Um, I know that when I was you know, more actively teaching, and I would ask my students who had plans to become police officers, um, you know, raise their hands, how many of you would like to be a police officer someday, and say 30 hands go up. Uh, and then I say, well, how many of you would like to uh, work th with uh, individuals who have mental health issues, and no hands go up. Uh, but we end up, those 30 people who said, I want to be a police officer, as I tried to explain to them, once they get hired, uh, that's exactly the kind of issues that they're going to be asked to work with. And 
in a sense, they aren't even signing up for this. So I, I agree completely that uh, policing in the United States, and I would even say other countries, are oftentimes responsible for, or expected to be responsible for, such a great variety of social ills that it's in many ways very unfair. Now, is the way to respond to that by cutting their funding or repositioning, is a better word to think of it, um, their funds? Uh, I say, yeah, I think that's certainly worth a try to, uh, uh, to change things around, shake things up a little bit, and say, you are not going to be our first port of call uh, for many of these issues. question that actually just came to me because I didn't realize that you had spoken um, in your teaching with many individuals that went on to become police, but right now to me it feels like there's just been a total breakdown between, you know, I guess civilians and police as far as understanding one another's perspective. Police that I've, that I've seen and that I've read about and I've talked to seem to feel that no one appreciates what they do. People seem to feel like the police don't understand at all what we're going through, what black Americans specifically are going through, and what we, you know, expect of the Do you have any theories on why there seems to be such a communication breakdown between, you know, civilians and police? Uh, I would agree that there is uh, that breakdown, break and um, even just my former students that I'm now Facebook friends with or in the community that I will see occasionally, um, they don't feel uh, appreciated. I used to have um, guest speakers come into my classes. Uh, I would have uh, police officers come in, and uh, I always remember one uh, police chief uh, who happened to be female and also happened to be one of my former students, and um, she would always talk to my my students, my police officers-to-be, and, and explain how important from her perspective it was to maintain contact with non-police officers. She was married to a police officer. Um, most of his friends, before they got married, were police officers. And she basically said, when I got married, I told him, we are going to make sure that we hang out with people who aren't involved in law enforcement. And she was trying to tell my, my students, and I think successfully so, how important it was for police, at least for her, to have contacts away from policing. And I think the, the point she was making, or at least what I took from it, is that uh, she understood that police are rather insulated. It's very, very difficult for other people, uh, for us to understand um, what the job of policing is. Uh, one of my other guest speakers used to always um, say, you know, we all know um, military officers, we all know school principals, we all know uh, pastors and ministers and priests, and uh, the speaker was saying, police also know all those people, but we tend to know the worst part of them. We tend to know about the, the priest who misbehaves, about the school principal uh, who is uh, having to investigate for uh, uh, drugs or um, other kinds of, uh, of illegal activities. And, you know, when you think about constantly seeing the worst of presumably good people or of all people, I mean, it's got to be a very, very difficult kind of situation to come in. Yeah, and I and it's interesting you brought up kind of uh, both the, the type of individuals that might be attracted to the job as well as the the toll the job can have on them. Um, both seeming like relevant factors. But uh, one thing I've always thought of, not the highest paying position. I've always wondered if if that might be you know part of the problem is is if you have to do something that's very difficult and potentially life threatening. For a lower salary, you know, 
if you have a, a lot of better options, I don't know if you're, you know, going to want to do that. And I'm not trying to be critical or, or mean to anyone there, but it, to me, it just seems kind of like a, a logical um, solution for that, uh, you know, situation. Um, but the, I think the flip side of that that other people have brought up is if you were to look at, you know, teachers, right? Um, we tend to be another example of people who are kind of consistently underpaid. You would be very, I think, shocked to see the type of people that we expect in policing end up as teachers. Um, and teachers tend to have a very difficult job, you know, dealing with, with students can be emotionally erratic. People have brought up the example of nurses or EMTs who um, aren't necessarily paid as much as they should be, who have to deal with, you know, similar kind of patients with mental problems, violent patients. And if, you know, I think the, police lose a lot of leeway when I think people bring up those examples because it's like if a nurse were to, to restrain someone in a chokehold so much so that they died, that would be like horrific. That would be all over the news. There wouldn't be a justification of that. And they have a similarly stressful job. So, you know, what is it about police that kind of gives them that ability to excuse themselves? So I, I don't know if that's as much of a question as much as an observation, but it seems to me that the, the outlines that for the, the case that you outlined as far as what might, the toll that it might take mentally on a police officer, I don't think is entirely absent from other jobs that don't see the same kind of, you know, violence against civilians. Do you think that's a fair point? I do. It's a, it's a very fair and relevant point. I think that, um, well, first of all, let me clarify that, that there used to be, actually, the, the research that was done on um, police authoritarianism, the idea that a certain kind of personality type is attracted to police work and that personality type is an authoritarian uh, type. And that research has been, uh, if not outright dismissed, it certainly isn't anything that people are, are looking at much more as being a, a way to understand police departments. Instead, it seems that the, the job of policing um, and the, the training that is, uh, is engaged in to the extent that there becomes a, um, a certain type of individual or a certain type of police officer, it's not the result of that person having a particular personality as much as it is the kind of job that they are involved in. And I also want to point out that many of, uh, again, using my own students as an example, uh, who would do internships before they graduate in police work, for example. And some of them would would say, you know what, even just the, the one semester that I spent doing ride-alongs or working in the police department, um, this really isn't what I thought I was going to be getting into, and I don't want to do this. And so they would change their major and go into something else. Uh, but we've also had, uh, interestingly, uh, students taking a class in criminal justice and um, deciding that, you know, I think I might do an internship as well. And my, my major was uh, social work or um, I remember one case it was a music major. And um, they found that they really enjoyed particular aspects of policing. They enjoyed going into the community. They enjoyed interacting with members of the community and uh, helping people and helping victims. Uh, and understanding that, you know, these people who have been hurt and harmed and these people need assistance as well. And sometimes police officers can do that. So I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that I've had people who might be coming from a very, for lack of a better word, social work kind of perspective and deciding that police work is something that they would be interested in doing.
Well, Tommy, I'd say I really appreciate all of the, your time and expertise. One thing I try and do with guests, this being a podcast that is really centered on conversation being called Let's Talk About Race, I see, in my opinion, kind of a breakdown of civil discourse, and I'm, I'm really hoping to try and get people to talk to one another, get outside of their bubble, try and get you know facts in their discussion. You being an academic, someone obviously I think that cares a lot about, as you said, teaching facts. What is what are the conversations you would like to see people have? What are things you would like people to educate themselves on? I think if there are opportunities uh, to interact with police officers, especially ones at various stages in their career, um, I think it's important if, as you're pointing out, um, you can get them to talk. It's not always easily done. Um, but police are, and I, I'm not trying to be an apologist at all, but I, uh, I know that there are police officers who are very, very upset with how they see other police behaving. Unfortunately, they might not always believe that they have an opportunity to speak out or to, uh, um, to do interviews and those kind of things. But um, I know that there are, are many police who, who wish that things were different. But if those opportunities ever present um, your listeners to uh, uh, take advantage of it, to, uh, to, to meet with police. If there are places in your local community where you are able to get involved with um, law enforcement uh, decisions, uh, do so, um, whether it's at the voting booth and listening to what your um, you know, police chiefs are usually appointed, but your district attorneys are oftentimes elected, listen to what your district attorneys have to say about uh, their interaction with police and what they're doing with prosecution. Ask the questions of the, of the politicians. You know, how would you respond to these situations? Um, most schools around the country, uh, and including both um, junior colleges or two-year or four-year colleges, uh, have criminal justice programs. Um, think about maybe signing up for one of those, those classes just as a, a citizen wanting to find out more about uh, law enforcement. Uh, and in that class, in all likelihood, are going to be some uh, law enforcement personnel. Uh, I, mean, I mean, there are opportunities out there, and some of them are formal, many of them are informal, and uh, I think taking advantage of those opportunities when they arise uh, can be good for both the police officer and for the um, regular citizen. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something that I'm trying to do personally. I think that would be beneficial on both sides, bridging the divide between us and them, um, police and civilian, you know, I'm definitely pro it on, on both sides. Um, but Professor Reichel, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your expertise, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can see some change happen. Uh, I agree, and you're very much welcome.